I remember. I think you need this. I do need that. Thank you very much. This is a little Some of you know, uh, well, many of you know Chris, but some of you don't. This is one of the other elders, one of the pastor elders on our, uh, on our team here. And uh, this is Chris Ward. We're glad for Chris and Maria. God bless you, brother. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to all of you. It's, kind of, it's, a, it's a great morning. It was fun singing together. Um, we, uh, we uh, Brennan has, is leading us on this uh, journey through the lyrics of Christmas. I think that is such a cool name. I'm really kind of captivated by that idea. The lyrics of Christmas. Um, and we are looking at the four songs or poems or uh, lyrical passages recorded in the first couple chapters of Luke. And uh, they were all extemporaneous exclamations uh, by people just prior to Jesus' birth. Uh, and these poems didn't really originate with the speakers. They didn't compose these poems. They didn't write them in advance. Uh, but they were actually given them by the Holy Spirit, which makes the poems, uh, the lyrics, all the more intriguing, uh, I think, anyway. And last week, um, Brennan covered the first such poem, and that was the one given to Mary. Uh, and it has a special name called the Magnificat. Uh, but when she learned she was going to have a baby... She also learned at the same time that uh, her relative, we don't know if it was an aunt or a cousin or anyway, that her elderly relative, Elizabeth, was also going to have a miraculous baby. So by golly, she went and stayed with Elizabeth. She moved, uh, she temporarily relocated and went and lived with Elizabeth for a while. And um, so, and when they greeted each other, Mary burst into this extemporaneous praise, like the Holy Spirit came upon her, and, uh, and that was the first passage, that was the first song, if you will, of Christmas. And today, we're going to look at the second. We're going to look at the second. And the second such song um, was given to uh, Elizabeth's husband, and his name was Zechariah. So, uh, if you, so we're going to look at Luke 1 and, uh, and talk about Zechariah and ultimately uh, his song. But before we do that, what, what do you say we pray? <clears throat> Father, uh, thank you so much uh, for Christmas and the songs of Christmas and how Christmas inspires us to sing. And really, uh, Christmas is about what you did and how you laid aside your glory and came to earth as a man, as a baby first, but as a lowly human. Uh, what a condescension. How awesome. Father, we are so grateful to you. And Lord, we offer this time to you. and pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak to me, and that we would hear, and that we would obey, and that we would rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, if you have a Bible, if you wouldn't mind, please turn to Luke, uh, Luke 1. Um, if you don't have your Bible with you, there's a Bible in front of you probably in the pew. And our story is going to start on page 855. If you don't own your own Bible, then by all means, please take one from the pew. That would be, uh, we would love for that to be our gift to you. So, um, so we're going to start by looking at Luke chapter 1. Uh, little Bible trivia. I'm kind of into Bible trivia. This story only appears in Luke. There are four books in the Bible called the Gospels, Mary, uh, Mary Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, uh, and they tell almost the same stories. They're very, very similar. And, uh, and so we usually compare them to each other. And, uh, but this story only appears in Luke. It doesn't appear in any of the, any of the other Gospels. So there you go. I'm sure you guys are all interested in that tidbit there. So, uh, so let's, let's start the story. Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. It says, In the time of, king Her- of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah 
who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron, and both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Um, so we haven't actually gotten to the story part, but let me just, if you don't mind, let me just chase this rabbit briefly because it, it really kind of captivated my thoughts and imagination. And this notion of this last sentence where it says, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Well, do you, do you buy that? I mean, is that, is that really true? I mean, were they really blameless? And, uh, and this is kind of an interesting biblical phenomenon. This, they, they were not the only people that the Bible and God called blameless. Um, Noah, Genesis, and can you guys read that? It's pretty small. But anyway, in Genesis, God calls Noah blameless. Uh, Job, I, I can't remember. I think God was actually talking to Satan when he said, Have you seen my servant Job? The guy's blameless. Or That's not an exact quote. But uh, I think that's what the context was. Uh, King David called himself blameless two, three times. <laughs> and, uh, and if you know much about his life, then that's not really a title I would have attributed to David. And then finally, in the book of Titus in the New Testament, it says that you should only choose church elders that are blameless. So good luck on that, you know. And uh, so, uh, so why, would, uh, why would God call Zechariah and Elizabeth both both blameless. They weren't. Uh, I'm offering to you that I think this is a turn of phrase. This is an expression more than it is a literal truth, and uh, and this is not altogether without precedent in the Bible. You know, the Bible. God does this in other places in the Bible. Uh, if you want to jot down a note, Mark. That's the that's the second gospel, Matthew, Mark, Mark chapter one, verse five. There's a verse, and it's talking about John the Baptist. And it says, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to hear him. Well, is that, is that really true? Did the whole Judean countryside and did all the people of Jerusalem go out to hear him? No, I would suggest not. So, uh, so I'm suggesting to you that this phrase about uh, Elizabeth and uh, Zechariah was, was an, a, a literary expression, if you will. And, uh, and there's a famous verse in the Bible, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that supports this idea. You know, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And, uh, and even, if, even if it were true, I'm belaboring this, I know, but even if it were true that Elizabeth and Zechariah were able to, uh, to meet all the Old Testament laws, I mean, and they couldn't, but anyway, even if they could achieve that standard, when Jesus came, he, in his Sermon on the Mount, he raised the bar much higher than that. And he went on, Jesus said that, uh, that to be blameless, you not only have to keep the law, but you have to, but you are judged by the inner and secret desires of your heart, not just the desires you choose to act out. Well, goodness gracious, I mean, that, that, that puts the, the bar far out of anyone's reach, including, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And, uh, and I have no doubt that they knew in their hearts, as do we all, they knew in their hearts that despite their most fastidious law-keeping, they fell short. They just fell short. You know, Zechariah and Elizabeth, I, I presume, uh, that they were devoted law-keepers. You know, that they tried hard every day to do what was right, to do what was best, to do what, you know, God bless Zechariah and Elizabeth. I mean, that's wonderful. That's, I, I respect them for that. And, uh, and I appreciate that. And, and perhaps, perhaps likewise, you are a dutiful law keeper. 
Maybe in your heart, you try your best to do every day what God would have you do and whatever you think is the right thing to do. Maybe you're like Elizabeth and Zechariah, and by golly, you are trying to be blameless. Well, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, and Elizabeth, when it's quiet and when you're still, you will know that you fall short. Despite all of our best efforts, we all fall short. And, uh, and just as this verse says, it's not by works so that no one can boast. It's instead a gift of God by his grace. And they and we and everybody needs a savior, needs a savior. So, uh, you know, the gospel just comes through in every story, including this one, including this one. So, you know, and, and I'm sorry, one last note. If, uh, if you've never done that, if you have never bowed, it does, it's not hard, doesn't take long. If you have never bowed your head privately before the Lord and said, I, I can't do it. I'm, I'm just not going to make it, Lord. I'm not good enough. I'm never going to be good enough. I've tried real hard. But, uh, but, but the word try you know, implies that you failed. And I'm not going to make it, Lord, and I need a Savior. Would you please save me? Dang, God will save you at that moment. You will become his child. Cry out to him. If you have not done that, now's the time. Not at the end of the service. Now. Now is the time for you to do that if you wish. So there we go. So let's go back to uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, they, were, uh, they were great people, but blameless, I think I'm suggesting, was a hyperbole. And, uh, and let's look at the next few verses in our passage. But they were childless. They were childless. We're talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And, uh, and they were both very old. And once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Okay, so we know that Zechariah was a priest and, uh, and only priests were allowed to perform duties inside the temple. Not just anybody, he had to be a priest. And on this day, uh, Zechariah had been chosen to go into the temple and burn incense. And the altar of incense, where he burned the incense, the altar of incense was inside a portion of the temple called the holy place. Okay? Now, now this is a picture of the tabernacle, which is like the Old Testament version of the temple. Zechariah, uh, well, Zechariah was uh, in, served inside Solomon's temple. They built one, but they intentionally built it based on the same architecture as the tabernacle. So anyway, I just showed you this picture so you could kind of get a feel for what, it, you know, uh, for what the architecture looked like. And um, this one was, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, they moved, not in the Old Testament, but before they came to Israel, while they were in the desert, they had to move a lot. And so this one was made out of tents and hides, and, uh, and it was much more mobile, of course, than the temple that was made out of stone. But I wanted to point out that some of the elements of the temple... Uh, that large item in the front center, the the altar of burnt offering, was a big mammoth thing, and it was outdoors. It was open to the sky, and uh, and that's where they burnt. Uh, that's where they conducted uh, sacrifices. And immediate and behind that, it looks like a little teacup, but that was a very very large basin of water where the priests washed their hands after doing this very bloody and dirty work of animal sacrifice. And, uh, and so those two elements were outdoors, and then there was an inner compound, an inner structure, if you will, called the holy place. And, that's, and inside there is where Zechariah went. Not there, that's the tabernacle. So here, let's change. 
So this is an artistic rendition of the same thing, only now we're using stone because Solomon's temple was built out of stone. And, uh, and so you, the bottom one I kind of like. It's, a, it's, it's artistic, but it, it's probably, it, it fits my imagination anyway. And, uh, and, I, and I think it was a good one. So again, on the outside, we have this uh, altar of um, burnt offering. It was a big monstrous thing, about seven and a half feet square, about five feet tall. The, the basin held uh, well over 10,000 gallons of water, big old, big thing. And then, and then, um, then we had the holy place. Then we had the, the infrastructure. This is an interior view of that item. It, uh, it wasn't very big. It wasn't very big. It was about the size of a single, single wide mobile home, about something kind of like that. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't this big. And, uh, and it was a long, long, narrow uh, room structure. And it had several items on the way in. And here, let's, uh, let's start at the back and move forward. At the back was the Ark of the Covenant. You may not be able to make much out of that picture. It was a large golden chest. Then there were some religious artifacts inside. And there were two an- golden angels on top where their wings came forward and touched in the middle. So that's what those things are. And uh, most importantly, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. I mean, it, and, in the old, and, uh, and when God's glory descended, it, 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 he, his presence actually rested there. So that was like where God was. It was a big, big deal. And, uh, and separating that Ark of the Covenant from the rest of the room was that curtain. You can see the curtain. This was no minor curtain. It was a big, heavy, thick curtain woven out of goat hair, I think. And, uh, and so um, after the curtain, ca- there was a lamp stand. Uh, now, it looks like a candlestick. They didn't use candles. They used olive oil, and it burned oil. Uh, so I don't know. Is that, make it a, is that a menorah? Perhaps it's not a candlestick. Anyway, it's a big, tall thing, about five and a half, six feet tall, big as a man. And, uh, and then there was a table of showbread. Why we call it showbread is beyond me. It was a table for bread. And, uh, and t- uh, every day they would put fresh bread on the table. It, of course, was gold. All these items were gold. You can see this one had poles because before they moved to the temple, while they were still in the desert and with the tabernacle, they moved around. And they would cover it up and carry it on the poles and move it around. And then finally, what we care about today was the altar of incense. It had poles, so it could be moved around. Now, when they had the one in the temple, I don't know if they kept the poles in because it was a permanent place, so I don't know about the poles, but it doesn't really matter. But the altar of incense was, uh, was not a very big thing. It was only about 18 inches square. It was about maybe not as big around as this table here. You could easily put your arms around it. And it was only three feet tall. So it was shaped more like a water cooler than a table. All right? Can you kind of get that picture in your head? And uh, and it was all and it was gold covered and it had a flat top. And uh and it was in the re- it, it was just uh inside the curtain. So when you were standing before it, you were uh, you were very close to the uh to the ark of the covenant. And Moses, uh, excuse me, God had given Moses um a lot of very, very detailed instructions on what all these things should look like, how they should be built. None of this was man's idea. This was all God's idea. He designed all these things and told Israel exactly what they should look like, how big they are, blah, blah, blah. And you can read about that if you want in, uh, in Exodus. So, um, so every morning and evening, twice a day, a priest would uh, go, would enter the outer compound past the altar of burnt offering. Remember that big thing? And he would scoop up and take some hot burning coals from that altar 
and he would walk into the holy place, that inner compound, walk in. He'd go past the uh, menorah and past the table and, uh, and, and walk up to the altar of incense. And then he would put these hot coals on the flat top of this altar of incense. And then he would sprinkle on it, I don't know how much, he would sprinkle on it uh, um, powdered incense. And what would happen? Immediately, what would happen? Smoke would rise, right? And, uh, and this, was, this symbolized prayer, regular, consistent, every day, and fragrant to God. This, this smoke would rise up as an expression of prayer. And, and whenever the priest did this, twice a day, whenever the priest did this, people would gather outside the structure to pray themselves. Um, do you remember uh, in Acts uh, chapter 3, um, Peter and John were going to the temple and they met a lame man and he went walking and leaping and praising. You, you know that. You remember that story. Well, it says in Acts 3.1, they were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. Well, what time was that? That was this time. Not this time with Zechariah, but, you know, this time of day. They did this twice a day. And it was a good time to pray yourself. And that's why they were, that's where they were headed. You know, and, uh, and just another note, um, don't forget where those coals for the incense came from. The coals came from the altar of burnt sacrifice. You know, and it's Jesus' sacrifice that makes us able to pray. That's why God hears our prayers, because of Jesus' sacrifice. You know, that's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Because of what Jesus did, we're able to cry out to the Lord. And so there's no mistake that that was the symbolism God used. Take those coals, take them into my presence, and, and then, then, then offer an, make an offering of prayer. So, worshipers, they gathered outside, um, and Zechariah began to burn incense. So kind of get this, play this video in your head, you know, kind of imagine Zechariah, he's gone. This is a formal time. This is a very important time. It's kind of a bit of an intimidating time to go stand so close to the ark. I, I would have been intimidated. I would have been nervous. It's quite an honor, quite an honor for Zechariah. And, uh, and let's see what happens next. So bang, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Can you imagine? Are you playing this? Are you, can you see this in your head? This is... This would be a life-changing moment. This would be incredible. Uh, you know, who knows what you would do. And, uh, and of course, uh, what were the angel's very first words? He was reading right out of the angel playbook. The first thing angels are always supposed to say. Do not be afraid. So that was obligatory. Do not be afraid. And, uh, and then he, goes, he finishes that sentence by saying, Your prayer has been heard. Well, how appropriate. How, uh, how appropriate that on the day Zechariah is going to go serve at the altar of incense, which symbolizes Israel's prayers unto God, that on that day, God would send him an angel saying, hey, your pray- God's heard your prayers. Uh, which is a cool, a cool, very sweet notion. But it, uh, but it begs the question, well, what prayer is that? Well, we don't have any record of you know, Zechariah making a prayer request. What, what prayer did God hear? 
Well, it doesn't say explicitly, but I, I think it's pretty clear that the, uh, the angel says it in the very same sentence. It says, your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. Oh, oh, well then. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they had prayed for a child. They had prayed for a child. Now, do you think they had done so recently? And it's a bit of a trick question because verse 7 told us that they were both very old. Not just old, they were very old. And uh, how, how many years ago had they given up on that prayer? You know, uh, do you think they stopped praying in their 60s, in their 50s, in their 40s? How long would you pray? I mean, if, if you were 60, would you continue to pray for a child? And, uh, and I, I'm... I, I'm suggesting to you, I'm personally of the opinion that Zechariah had not only long since stopped praying for a child, he had forgotten. He had forgotten all about that prayer. But the Lord heard that prayer. The Lord heard that prayer, and he remembered it. So let's, let's turn that coin over briefly. Are there any prayers in your life that you've abandoned? You ever walk, have you walked away from a prayer request? Maybe you, maybe you prayed for the salvation of your family. Maybe you prayed that your kids would love the Lord or serve Him. And uh, maybe, maybe you prayed for uh, the revival of our country, for revival in our country. Maybe you prayed that the Lord would do something exciting in your own life. God heard Zechariah's prayer. Just let that sink in. God heard Zechariah's prayer. And not only did he hear his prayer, he made a plan to fulfill it 40 years hence. God hears your prayers. God hears your prayers. And, you know, truth be told, God doesn't give us everything we ask for. You know, that's not much of a surprise. Um, and sometimes when he does answer, he says no. But, uh, but until he does, there is a reason for hope. There is reason for hope. Be encouraged. Let me give you some encouragement today. Keep praying. Keep praying. So let's continue with the story. He says, uh, you're, this is angel speaking. He says, your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is quite a speech. It's quite a speech from the angel uh, to Zechariah. And, uh, and let's just review a couple of the things he said. He said the boy would be a great source of joy to a lot of people. That's, that's great. And he would be great in the sight of the Lord. How many of you parents would like to hear that? You know, it'd be one thing for an angel to tell you, hey, your child is going to be a really gr- good person or a great person. Not, and not just great in the sight of men, but great in the sight of God. I'm, every parent would love to hear that. That's wonderful. And that this boy would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born, that he would bring many people back to God, and that he would operate in the spirit and the power of Elijah, preparing the nation for God. This, this is just like mind-blowing stuff. This is stuff that never happens. And that last line there, line about Elijah, it may have kind of been lost on you. It's a bit... It's not exactly clear in this context anyway. But in the, uh, in the book of uh, Micah, excuse me, Ma- 
Malachi, not Micah, Malachi chapter 4 or 5. It's like the very last book of our Old Testament. And it was also the very last book of prophecy in Zechariah's Bible. Uh, ancient Jews organized their books slightly different than we do today. Same books, just a different order. But anyway, in his prophecy section, that's, there was a sentence in Malachi. It was the very last one before the 400 years of silence. And it was the very last prophecy in his Bible. And, uh, and it's God promising, God saying, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. So, so Zechariah, as well as the other Jews, they were looking for Elijah. Maybe, maybe we've never, maybe we don't talk about that much today, but they were looking for Elijah because they knew Elijah had to come first before the Messiah could come. So, do you remember, uh, Remember when John the Baptist was uh, baptizing and the Pharisees came to him and they said, uh, hey, uh, tell us who you are. Are you the prophet? And that was code language for, are you the Messiah? And what did he say? What did he say? No. He said, no, no, I'm not the Messiah. And then the very next question right on the heels of that was, well, are you Elijah? Because they were looking for Elijah. They They knew this prophet and they asked him, they wanted to know if he was Elijah. And then later, after John the Baptist's death, um, Jesus turned to his apostles and he said, Hey, who do people say that I am? And uh, Peter, speaking on behalf of, of all the rest of them, as often was the case. Anyway, <laughs> Peter, speaking on their behalf, said, Well, some people say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. And some people say you're Elijah. They were looking for Elijah. They knew this prophecy about Elijah. And here the angel is telling uh, Zechariah that his boy is going to be it. His boy is going to go in the power and spirit of Elijah. Incredible. Incredible. So, so what would you have done? What would you have done if the angel, first of all, appeared to you and said these words? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm benefiting from hindsight, and I'm, I'm not in the pressure of that moment. But I hope I would have said thanks. You know, this is great news. I really appreciate it. Thanks for letting me know. Or, or what about when is this going to happen? Or how about, uh, am I allowed to tell anyone? Am I allowed to tell everyone? Like, starting immediately? Is that okay? Uh, and are there any special instructions? I mean, the, the angel did give him some special instructions about alcohol. Said the boy wasn't supposed to drink alcohol. It's not because alcohol is necessarily bad. Just because it was a sign of this boy's dedication and service to the Lord. So no matter what. So John the Baptist never drank alcohol. And uh, but so that's a, that's a tidbit. But goodness gracious, I would want to know a little bit more. You know, is, do I need to know more stuff? about how to raise this boy. And, oh, and by the way, is he going to do cool miracles like Elijah did? Like around the house? <laughs> you know, growing up, is he going to do that, the kind of cool miracles that Elijah did? I mean, and these, and you know, and the more imagination you devote to this, you know, announcement, the more you want to know, the more things that just spring to your mind. But none of that stuff came out of Zechariah's mouth. None of that stuff came out of Zechariah's mouth. What did he ask? He asked like one thing. And then Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Because I'm old. And my wife's way old too. We're like way old. You know, and how can I be sure? How can I be sure of this? It's kind of insulting actually. You know, I've got three girls, three daughters. They're all grown. But if I called any one of them this afternoon and said, "Hun, i I'm going to buy you a car. A new car. And it's going to be delivered on Thursday. And, 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 and it's this color, and it's this model, and I hope you love it. And if they look and over the phone, if they said, well, how can I be sure? 
I'd say, what do you mean? How can you be sure? I just told you. That's how you can be sure. You don't think I can do it? You don't think I want to do it? What's your problem? What do you mean? How can you be sure? What kind of response is that? You know, and maybe I won't, maybe I won't give you the car, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so when he asked the angel, how can I be sure? I mean, well, let me ask a couple other questions. Was he curious? Was his question based in curiosity about how the Lord was going to do it? I'm asking you to speculate, use your imagination. I suggest not. Doesn't sound like he is convinced it's going to happen. He just wants to know how. I'm not getting that sense. Is, does he have any doubt that this message is from God? Uh, Angel's pretty persuasive. I would, I would, I'm pretty sure he thought he knew it was from God. So, so when he asked the angel, how can I be sure, what did he really mean? And I'm suggesting to you what he really said, what he said in his heart was, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Um, you know, and in case you think I'm hard, too hard on Zechariah, you can check verse 20 and the angel confirms that. The angel says, you don't believe me. You don't believe this is going to happen. So, so even though he said, how can you be sure? What he, I'm suggesting to you what he said in his heart was, I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. You know, the angel gave him a whole list of super cool promises about this boy. And, uh, and what the boy was going to do, what the boy was going to be. Zechariah, and my, I don't even think he heard that. I don't even think he heard what the angel said. He tuned out right after your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. And, uh, you know, the angel's going on, your boy's going to be a source of joy and like Elijah. And, and, and Zechariah's like, wah, 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 you know, from Charlie Brown's teacher. And there's only one thing on Zechariah's mind. He's thinking, that, that can't be right. That, that can't be right. It's not going to happen. It's not possible. It's not going to happen. And, uh, and uh, so now I'm, I'm, I'm venturing out into a little into speculation here, but I, I personally am of the opinion that when he and Elizabeth were young, they prayed for that baby. They prayed for a child. And if you've known a couple that wanted a child but couldn't have one, then you know people like that pray hard, and they pray fervently, and they pray Often, it's like on their minds all the time. I suggest to you that they prayed for years for that baby. And, uh, and nothing happened. And God didn't speak. God didn't act. And finally, they stopped. Finally, they stopped. I, I think that Zechariah had given up hope on that dream a long time ago. So again, let's turn the coin over. <laughs> Have you ever pursued God hard? For something important, for something you needed, a good thing. The God can't, you know, object to this. Have you ever prayed hard for something and God just did not answer? God just did not answer. And now, years later perhaps, when you think about that thing, you're just done. You're just done. You're just done hoping for that thing. And when you reflect on it and what you wanted, uh, you're convinced now that God's not going to do that. It's too late. It's too late. It'll always be like this. Whatever your this is, God, it'll always be like this. You know, perhaps you have prayed for loved ones, and uh, but now you're sure they're they just they're just never going to listen. Or perhaps you have prayed uh, for your spouse, but in your heart you've concluded he's never going to change. And uh, perhaps you prayed that life would just not be so hard because you are sick, or because you are poor, or because you are lonely. And, uh, and you've conclu- after prayer, uh, you've concluded that life's just not going to get any better. 
Have you ever had those thoughts? Because truth be told, I've had some of those thoughts. And, uh, and when we give up on prayer, we give up on God. You know, I'm, I'm not uh, criticizing you. I'm just observing the facts. When we give up on prayer, we've give up, we give up on God. And, those, and when we give up on prayer, it leads us down a path to a very awkward and difficult question that, if we're honest, we can't avoid. And that question is, does God really care? I mean, really? I mean, really, does he? If he does, why, well, what's the deal? And those are hard words to swallow. Those are hard words to say out loud. And, uh, you know, and if you've ever been there, then maybe you're disappointed in God, to put it frankly. And uh, perhaps if you've been there a long time, your disappointment has matured into resentment. And I don't know exactly where Zechariah was in his heart, but the very possibility that God was going to that God was going to answer his prayer was, had become to him an inconceivable notion. I mean, he was, he was so far over it. He, it wasn't even possible. He was over the whole pray for a miracle thing. And uh, this should have been an astounding, amazing, miraculous, should have been like the best day of his life, but Zechariah forfeited all that joy. He forfeited all that joy because long since ago, he had concluded that God just doesn't do that sort of thing. And maybe in the past, maybe for other people, not, not for him, not for me. You know, and today, sometimes we are tempted to think, you know, God doesn't heal. God doesn't intervene. God doesn't save. God doesn't care. But, but let me assure you, he does. Clearly, God does. He loves you. And in times of God's silence, which are difficult, in times of silence, God's silence, when you can't see his hand moving, you can trust his heart. Please trust his heart. He does care. He is often slow, and I mean terribly slow, by our standards. But he is not absent. And uh, so, so, yes, by all means, pray for your hopeless cause. Pray for your hopeless cause and trust God to act even when he seems to be doing nothing. Okay, that's like so emotional. Whew. You know, maybe, maybe I'm uh, too free in my diagnosis of Zechariah's heart. You know, truth be told, I'm not that great of a psychologist. But, uh, and I could be totally wrong. I mean, I'll offer that out to you. I could be totally wrong. But my main goal this morning in this conversation anyway, my main goal is not so much to accurately document Zechariah's you know, secret motivations of his heart as it is for us to learn from them, right? Um, um, maybe, uh, maybe Zechariah had not given up on prayer. Maybe there was some other reason that he didn't believe the angel. But the fact is, he didn't believe. He didn't believe the angel. So whether it was, uh, for, you can pick your reason. You can, identify, you can suspect whatever cause you choose. But the fact is, Zechariah did not believe God's promise was true. Okay, and that sounds really bad, especially for a priest. Oh my goodness, you know, that guy, him, let me point my finger at him. He should have known better. He shouldn't have, he should have believed. Well, he didn't. And, um, and uh, so one more time, let's turn that coin over. How are you doing on God's promises? God has made some incredible, fabulous, wonderful, difficult promises to you. And so, to, to us, I'm right there with you. And, uh, and sometimes... We don't believe them. Sometimes we, in fact, reject these promises from God. You know, God says, let me speak on his behalf now. God says, if you forgive people that hurt you, 
I'll make it up to you. Ouch. Do we even want that promise? Do we even want to go there? Forgive? I don't want to forgive that guy. You know what that guy did to me? Do you know what the pain that caused me? I don't want to forgive him. But And God makes you a promise. If you forgive him, I'll make it up to you. I'll be your portion. I don't want your portion. Thank you very much. And we can be like Zechariah, just like that. What about when God makes you the promise, if you choose to tell the truth, I'll protect you. You know, sometimes I just need to lie. You know, sometimes I just, I, I can't tell the truth. all the time. Yes, you can. And God promises you, if you tell the truth, I'll protect you. I'll take care of it. God says, these are all hard. God says, if you are gracious to people that are hurtful, and we all have hurtful people in our lives, if you are gracious to that person, I will manage the injustice. It won't be fair, but I'll take care of it. Well, uh, you know, you have no idea what kind of pain I experienced, Lord. Oh, yeah, yeah, he does. And, And these promises are hard to embrace. They're easy to reject. What about if you sacrifice your personal time to serve me, you'll actually be happier. I don't mind serving you, you know, as long as you don't do it every other Saturday during football or, or when I like to do these things. You're not going to make a big claim on my life, are you, Lord? Well, God's making you a wonderful, fabulous promise. If you devote, if you give your, private, your personal time to me, you'll be happier at the end of the day. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Because these are the kinds of promises that Zechariah did not believe. And sometimes we're like him. And we reject these promises. If you obey me, it won't matter what people think of you. Ouch! That comes close to home. If you obey me, it won't matter what people think. Last one. If you tell others about me, I'll give you the words. How many of us are afraid to share? Because I'm sure they're going to ask me something I don't know. And I won't know the answer and I'll look stupid. And God says, if you share with others, I'll give you the words. And if I don't give you enough words, I'll give you all the words you need. And do, we, do you believe that promise? Do you believe those promises enough to embrace them and act upon them? So he's starting to relate to Zechariah. You know, he's a little bit more like me than I thought he was at the beginning of this story. And uh, so let's, let's see what happened next. Let's go back to the story. So... Uh, what happened next? So then Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent. He probably pointed his finger at that moment. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words. It's like he's, it's like he's angry. It's like, are you talking to me? Do you know who I am? I'm Gabriel. Who are you not to believe this promise? Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So, you know, this could have been the greatest day in Zechariah's life, but he spoiled it. But he spoiled it. Enough said. That's a joke. Enough said. Like you couldn't speak. (laughs) Anyway. So, what happens next? So... Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah. It was the time of prayer, remember? Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. Well, what do you know? There you go. God came through. Did just what he said he was going to do. Who'd who'd have thought? 
So let's keep going. So when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Here, step aside, Elizabeth, step aside. And then they made signs of his father to find out what he would like to name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free. And he began to speak, praising God. Here, we're getting to the big finish here. So Zechariah He had like nine and a half, maybe ten months, because we don't know how long he stayed in Jerusalem before he went back home. He had like nine and a half months or so to think about it. And uh, and, and for the last three months, he's been living with Mary. Remember, she came to visit. He's been living with Mary, who is like the world's greatest example of the faith he lacked. So, uh, uh, So anyway, he I'm sure he had plenty of time to repent and think this over in the quietness of his own heart. And now at this moment... When he says, when he writes, his name is John, he obeys and the curse is broken. And then, oops, and then Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Okay, this is like the big climax. This is where this is where the story has been going to this point. Zechariah was overcome by the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of what it means when it says Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit kind of came on him and Zechariah began to speak. And the Holy Spirit gave him these words and he just kind of like rolled with it. And it was like being carried on a stream of water. And uh, Zechariah utters this uh, beautiful song. And, um, and it starts off with, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Has anybody ever told you that? Has anyone ever said those words to you? Let me be the first. <laughs> praise God, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. It's big news. It's big news. You, you know, do you think this perhaps spoke to Zechariah who might have felt abandoned by God? Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Well, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed him. God showed up. God, God showed up. Be encouraged. He has come to his people. He cares. He loves. And we're, as we go through this song, we're going to see that the things God says in this song, the Holy Spirit says in this song, speak to Zechariah's needs and his weaknesses and his fears and, and ours. So the next thing is that God has raised up a powerful Savior just as he promised. The verse actually says he raised up a horn of salvation. But in the in the Old Testament, horns always represented strength. So it's it's a notion of power and strength. God has raised up a powerful Savior just as he promised. You know, God is strong and God is purposeful. And he keeps his promises even when we doubt. Even when, you know, he keeps the, the, he, he remembers. I'll get to that in just a second. And he will save us from our enemies and from all those who hate us. 
man, that's good news. He will save us from our enemies and all those who hate us. Who are your enemies? You can think to yourself, I don't have any enemies. Uh, I, bet, I bet you do. What are you afraid of? Let me put it that way. Sometimes I'm afraid of bills. Sometimes I'm afraid of illness. Sometimes I'm afraid of living alone. So, uh, sometimes I'm afraid of life. I don't even want to get out of bed. You ever been there? Anybody ever been there? You have anything in your life? You have any enemies in your life that uh, make you fearful? Well, He will save us from our enemies and from all those who hate us. Whew, this is wonderful, great, great news. He remembers His holy covenant. Not only does God remember his promises, not only does he remember what he said, but he remembers the prayers you've forgotten, the prayers you've given up on. He remembers all that stuff. He enables us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. You don't have to live in fear. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's just like a burden off your shoulders right there. We don't have to live in fear. He enables us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Holiness is the notion of being set aside for a purpose. It's not just being good. That's, not, that's, that's a weak explanation of holiness. Holiness is being set aside for a specific purpose. So God's offering you here purpose, and not just any purpose, but a good purpose, a purpose based in righteousness. He enables us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Praise be to the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and he has redeemed them. That is the message of this song that the Holy Spirit authored and gave to us, recorded for us to hear. God is great, and he's triumphed over all the things that Zechariah couldn't manage in his life. And, and I suggest to you those are things we can't manage either. And God succeeded and triumphed over all of them. We can rejoice in him. The, t- the tenor of this song is celebration, and we can rejoice in what God has done. We didn't read the very tail end of the, of, the, of the song. You can read it because it was all about things that were pertaining to the boy. I wanted to read the parts that pertain to Zechariah, and you can read that later. But let me, uh, let me convert one of those sentences into a blessing for you today. And it says, May the mercy of God shine on all those living in darkness, living in the shadow of death, and guide your feet into the path of peace. May that be true for all of us. Merry Christmas to you. I hope that, uh, I hope that you related to Zechariah's song and that uh, you'll sing it for yourself. If you have uh, something big in your life, if you have something in your life, big or small, for which you would like prayer, there will be a family, a couple up here praying and making themselves available to you. So take advantage of them and the Lord this day. Let's close in prayer together. <clears throat> Father, uh, I celebrate you. Father, I I worship you and I rejoice in you because you have come to your people and you have redeemed us. Lord, thank you so much for uh, giving us this example from uh, Zechariah's life. Father, I pray for us this day that uh, we will embrace his song, your song. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great day.